Radio Mano Papachango. So here's how this one happened. I had scheduled a conversation with Johan Hari, who's a British journalist and author, uh, through his publicist at his hotel in Beverly Hills this morning. Uh, and I went in there, and it was kind of a tight schedule because he had stuff going on before and stuff happening after. Uh, he's He was on a Fox News show with Tucker Carlson. He's on Bill Maher this coming Friday. Uh, he's running around promoting his new book, which is called Lost Connections. Uh, you might have heard of his previous book called Chasing the Scream. Both books are about how things get bad for people. Trauma of various sorts is generated when we stray too far from our prehistoric life ways. Sound familiar? Uh, he doesn't necessarily view it in explicitly those terms. At least I don't think he did until today. Uh, but clearly there's a lot of overlap between what he's thinking and writing and what I'm working on. His uh, Chasing the Scream was about addiction, and he largely came to the conclusion that addiction was, as Gabor Mate says, not the problem, but an attempt to solve a problem. The problem being a lack of meaning, a lack of community, a uh, lack of dignity in, in the surroundings in which one is trying to live one's life. You have a meaningless job, you have empty friendships, empty relationships, um, it generates problems, and one of the ways that people deal with problems, of course, is with addictive, compulsive, self-destructive behavior. His latest book that's just out uh, two weeks ago, I think, three weeks ago maybe, is Lost Connections, and it's about how depression and anxiety are generated by the same absences in our lives, the absence of community and dignity and um, meaning and so on and so forth. So, and when I say dignity, I don't mean individual dignity. I mean, it's very hard to live a life imbued with dignity in a society that doesn't really offer you a lot of options for that kind of life. So, uh, for the, the sort of average person who doesn't have the time or energy or opportunity or privilege to design a custom-built life that works just perfectly for you, uh, it's tough. What are the options? You know, what are the options? An office job where you're just moving pieces of paper from one desk to another or a warehouse job where you're trying to survive and have some kind of an interesting life on 12 bucks an hour, driving a forklift, moving boxes around. There aren't a lot of viable options. And that's something that we talk about today. Anyway, what happened was I went to his hotel and, uh, you know, we, I was a little late. I was having trouble finding parking. So by the time I got there, we had about 45 minutes until we had to finish. So we rushed through and Honestly, I just 
you know, Johan knows how to talk. He's a professional. He's done a TED talk. He's a journalist. He's, you know, he's been around. He, he knows how this works. And so really he knew exa exactly what his shtick was. He's very prepared and he ran through it and I didn't interrupt very much. And I didn't even really direct the conversation very much because I knew our time was so limited. Um, and then we wrapped up and he called his Uber and we went downstairs. And as you'll hear, I really enjoyed hanging out with him. He's a fascinating guy, very, very smart and articulate and knowledgeable and as I said, we had so much in common that I was very frustrated because I, I would have loved to have hung out for hours and compared notes and, you know, picked his brain and added my two cents to some of his views. And uh, so we were waiting for the Uber and the car, first it said three minutes away. And then next time he looked at his phone, it said seven minutes and then it said nine minutes. And lucky it did because in those minutes of waiting and frustration, uh, I said, well, where, where do you have to be anyway? And he said, Orange County, which is about an hour from Los Angeles. And, uh, I had scheduled lunch with a friend, but I knew that she hadn't, she wasn't working. It was no big deal if I rescheduled. So I texted her and said, Hey, can we reschedule? And she said, yes. And I said, Johan, why don't I just give you a ride to Orange County and we can keep recording in the car. So he was happy to do that, canceled the Uber, jumped in the car and drove to Orange County. So you'll hear the first part of the of the podcast. We wrap it up uh, 45 minutes in, uh, but, you know, don't adjust your dial because we pick it up again uh, in the car just a few minutes later and have a more sort of leisurely, at least leisurely for him. I was driving on the 405, which was chaotic um, and so I might've been a little stressed, but it's funny. I've done three of these now that I can think of three car podcast recordings, one with Stanley, one with Simon Rex, and now this one with Johan Hari. And in all three cases, I was on the 405 going South. I don't know what that means, but it's, it's interesting. I've got to do, do some going North or East or West. Uh, but this is another southbound conversation with Johan Hari. He's, uh, as I said, he's a British journalist. He was one of the youngest columnists ever in the UK, uh, a real wunderkind. He's, as you'll hear, the, the first of his family to even go to university, much less become an internationally known writer. He ran into some controversy and, and a bit of scandal when it turned out that uh, he was attributing some quotations in some of his writing. Um, he didn't misquote anyone, but but he made it seem that they were speaking to him when in fact they were previous interviews with other people. So that brought hell down upon him and um, uh, he sort of faced that kind of career collapse at a young age. And uh, he made no excuses for himself. He retreated. He thought things over. And then he came back with Chasing the Scream, which was a very well-received book. And now this, which is doing very well as, as well as the first book. So he's uh, an interesting guy. He's only, I think he said, 35 years old. But he's really been around the track a few times already. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, the other uh, news I had... 
to share with you is that thanks to Jamal, who uh, is a guy, I, uh, one of the brothers, Yasin and Jamal, I did their podcast. I think it's called What's Up World Podcast. Um, really cool guys. Jamal works with uh, technology and he helped me sort out a little bit my Amazon affiliate link. And so apparently... It is now working in the UK and in Canada. So if you're listening in the UK or Canada and you'd like and you use Amazon and you'd like to uh, support my endeavors, I'd very much appreciate it if you would go to thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com, click on the Amazon affiliate link that you'll see in the right banner and uh, use that for your Amazon purchases and a small percentage of what you spend will be deflected away from Amazon toward supporting your favorite handmade garage-based podcast, or at least hopefully one of your favorites if you're listening. All right, that's all the news I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dump on you. Uh, I've got other stuff, but I'm going to re keep releasing two a week. Next episode is going to be with Bruce Damer. That's a very special episode. He's a very special man consults with NASA. He's, I think he said he's consulting on the landing site for the next Mars mission. He's obviously a bona fide genius, high IQ kind of guy, but he's not a nerd. He's a mystic. He's a, he's an alchemist. He's a magical, wonderful being. And I, probably one of the most unique people I've ever met, which is sort of nonsense because everyone's unique. But this guy is really off the charts unique. So that uh, I hope to release that episode maybe Thursday, later this week. All right. Thanks for listening to Tangentially Speaking. Thank you for reviewing this on iTunes. Thanks for telling your friends. And uh, thanks for being cool. I'm going to play you out with a tune that uh, I've played before, but it's been months, so it's time to play it again. It's a song that gets stuck in my head a lot. It's by a previous guest on the podcast, Simon von Gint from South Africa, and the song is about enjoying life while you can because it's watermelon time. The song's called Watermelons. It's from his CD called Suffer Well. Simon von Gent, V-A-N-G-E-N-D, and I uh, hope you enjoy okay. this and hope it provokes We're some running. interesting thoughts. Thanks for listening. Check out Johan on Bill Maher this weekend if you're uh, a fan of Bill Maher in real time on HBO. All I ever do is think about what's to come And how it's gonna be when my work is done And all the joy I'm gonna find when obstacles are overcome No matter where or when or who I'm with I'm always waiting for a bigger fish And all my hopes are mixed up in this myth that the best is yet to come This is the time This is the 
juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth, don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself to all that the moment brings How long you gonna sit around and wait? Bigger fish to bite upon your bait Some sweet magical idea to wake you up to really being here Happiness is just over the hill But over that one there's another still And even when you've reached the peak I bet that you will still find more to seek This is the time, this is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth, don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself to all the to run from what's inside of me Keeps me trapped inside the yet-to-be And like a stone I skip along the surface of the ocean that is me Slowly I am learning how to sink Beneath the layers of the thoughts I think world of what I feel where there's a chance to make the moment real This is the time, this is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth, don't leave it on the shelf I'm a big fan of self-deprecation. I think it's a, a sign of psychological health. And also it's a route yeah. to psychological health, right? If you yeah. can learn, even if it hurts, you learn to joke about the things that you're uncomfortable about, yeah. then you're doing, you're on the road to progress. Though. I'm not a great flag waver for any country, but the thing I'm most proud of as a British person is our profound, the British sense of humor. Yeah, like, right. I, I, would do, I would defend the British sense of humor with, you know, military force if necessary, yeah. right? Yeah. We believe in laughing. There's a story, I never know to find out if it's true or not. Uh, someone told it to me. So you might remember on the 7th of July 2005, we had some terrible subway bombings in London and yeah. it was an awful thing and uh, 53 people died, not including the bombers. Yeah. Two weeks later, 
another four, another group of four young men tried to do the same thing, uh, but they fucked it up. They didn't build the bomb right. So people were on the subway. They go down to the subway with these bombs. They tried to detonate them, and there's a loud bang, but the bomb, um, the, the detonator didn't connect with the explosive, so the bomb didn't go off. But obviously, people freaked the fuck out, sure. as you can imagine. People fled, and three of them escaped that day and were caught. I think later that day, and one of them was caught at the time. This is what I was told. Um, and they were caught by an off-duty fire officer who chased them for like chased the bomber for like two hours. And what I was told is that as he threw him on the ground, this attempted suicide bomber, what he said to him was, "You rude, rude man." <laughs> and I love that the idea that like suicide bombing is just yeah. extreme bad manners. Yeah. I mean, that's how di- there was another thing that happened in Britain uh, when um, we had um, in 2011 we had riots in London. It was the first time in well since I was a child that we'd had riots in London, and there was one place. Uh, an area called Tottenham where the the rioters managed to break into a luxury goods store but they could only break into they could only smash the corner of the window so they could only go in one at a time mm. and it was caught on the security cameras that they formed a line to go in and loot the store <laughs> and I love Very how deep organized. that's how deep the concept yeah. of queuing is in British yeah. society that yeah. even in riots we will form oh no I think you were before me you know. so is sense of humour one of the few areas where there's a bit of wildness because the the other side is that British society is so regimented and class conscious, and yeah, I mean, I, I've lived in Spain most of my life, and I've traveled when I wasn't. So I haven't lived in this country since I was in college, really. Uh, but by the way, I had a professor in college. You may know Andrew Harvey. I don't think so. He was at um, Oxford. Huh. Uh, he's the youngest don, I think, in the history of Oxford. Huh. He was at All Souls. He was um, Auden's last lover, I believe. Oh wow! Yeah. Anyway, he was he's, he was a big deal at Oxford. I, you went to Oxford, didn't you? I went to Cambridge. Oh so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Don't worry. Typical Easy American. Easy to confuse. Typical American <laughs> mistake. How dare you? <laughs> I know. If I were if I were you know a true Brit, I would know by your accent that no, you'd gone to Cambridge. And probably what public school you went to as well. I have a very misleading accent because I grew up in a you know my dad was a bus driver, my mother right. worked right. in a refuge, uh, and yeah, my all my grandparents left school when they were fourteen. Both my parents left school when they were sixteen. Uh, actually, my dad both left when he was fifteen. But I have this comically posh accent. When my mother wants mm. to impersonate me, she goes yeah 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 because she thinks I sound like the Queen, right? Yeah. To her, I'm like ludicrously. Yeah. Posh. So I don't quite know where this accent came from. It's bizarre. Even when I watch home videos of me when I was a kid, I've got this bizarre posh accent. Even in this kind of working class really? family, yeah, it's huh. a, I don't where it must have come from. The British accent thing really confuses and intrigues me because it's so identifying. Yeah. I mean, in your case, it's misidentifying. Yeah, yeah, I guess. yeah. It's sort of like a you know a hair weave or something, but. Uh, in America, you know, the accent is regional. Well, you read race into a voice in a way that British people don't. Hmm. So if you ask, and I, I did remember when I was first living here and I asked um, people, if you had never heard, you didn't know who Oprah was, you didn't know who Barack Obama was, and you heard their voice on the radio, how long would it take for you to know they were African-American? And everyone looked at me like I was an idiot and said, the first second they spoke, you mm. would know. It was a British mm. person, we don't read, unless they're a recent immigrant and they had a Caribbean accent or yeah. something, we would not read race into voice. Right. We would read class into voice. Right. So, so the equivalent to a British person would be saying, you know, our former Prime Minister David Cameron, who's really posh, how long into David Cameron speaking would you know he was from a rich family? It'd be like literally the moment he spoke, yeah. right? So mm. there's just, we just read different, we, I could identify a British person's class from them speaking in the, with the rapidity that you could identify an American's race yeah. or ethnicity. I don't know about Obama, though. I don't know that I yeah, would know he was black. 
You know, because he's obviously... First of all, what I love about Obama is we all talk about him being black. He's half black. Yeah. And he was actually raised by white people. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, in, in the most important senses, other than visually, he isn't actually black. Mm. It's, you know, it's the, the whole racial thing. My wife's from Mozambique, Chris. She grew right, up right. in Africa, but she's her fam most of her family's from India. Right. So she's a complete mixed bag. And it's funny to watch how people relate to her in different parts of the world. Right. Everyone has assumptions that they project onto this brown person, you know, uh, including uh, black Americans. She, she's mm -hmm. had some very interesting interactions with them. Anyway, what the hell? Uh, she's a psychiatrist. Huh. She read your book. I haven't oh. had a chance to read it. It just arrived uh, last week. But she sat down and read the whole thing oh. in, in one night and, and took notes. Uh, and and loved it and we went through and she pointed out like this and this and then I had a chance to uh, read some oh, sections. I'm so thrilled by that. Uh, I, I'm really interested. You, you're talking about your your family. You're the first. I don't know about your siblings. I know you have a brother whose name you forgot. <laughs> I should explain to listeners that I am so tired that earlier today my brother phoned me and there was about three seconds where I was like, okay, I know your name. You yeah. grew up in that house, same time as me. This is not I a good sign. Never right? forget a phase. <laughs> i got an older brother and older sister. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, and they, I assume, are both, they went to university. No, no, the, the, I was the, um, my sister went to a kind of former, uh, what we call a former polytechnic, but no, I was mm. the first person in my family to go to a kind of fancy. My oh, okay. brother left school when he was 15. Right. I was the first person in my family to go to a kind of fancy, um, right. you know, get a fancy education, basically. And yeah. here we are in Beverly Hills. <laughs> In a, in a hotel room that's, you know, I hope your publisher's paying for this. <laughs> this is Fox News. It's Rupert Fox Murdoch's News. papers. I did ah. a Fox News. I should say, we're in the, we're, what's it called? The Beverly Wilshire. And I yeah. uh, I only ever stay in fancy hotels when anyone, someone else yeah. is paying. Yeah, me too. And one thing that really strikes you is how incredibly fucking miserable people are in expensive hotels. Oh, Have you noticed yeah. this? I have. You know, if we yeah. went to the cheapest hotel, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a shitty part of LA, people would be much happier than they are here. People grow up with yeah. kind of sour. Right. If you smile at people, they look miserable. And why you is know. that? Well, it relates to the themes of my book. In there a way. you go. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm in promotion. Soft mode. pitch. There was a pitch for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's this concept. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't relate so much to the book, but there's this concept that I learned from um, Professor Richard Wilkinson. He's a wonderful one of the social scientists I got to know for the book. Uh, it's this concept of social distance, yeah. right? It's really interesting. So. Let's think about a country I know pretty well, Norway. Norway is a super equal society, right? The richest Norwegian is not that far apart from the poorest Norwegian. Uh, they have a, basically everyone is in the middle with a very, very small number of exceptions. There's a few homeless people and a few very wealthy people, mostly who don't live in the country, uh, but who were originally Norwegian. So the social distance between the richest Norwegian and the poorest Norwegian is really small, right? right. Basically, they can reach out to each other. Um, the social distance in the United States is huge and has been growing. Um, and there's lots of evidence that extreme inequality triggers a sense of depression and anxiety. So the book is uh, my book, Lost Connections, which I've been taught to re-say the name of all the time. My book, Lost Connections, is about what causes depression and anxiety and how to solve them, uh, which is a very personal journey for me for the reasons I'm sure we'll talk about. But this is one of the ones, the causes of depression and anxiety I've not been asked about that much. And I think it's a really interesting one. I was thinking about it in this hotel. So one of the ways I learned about this is this fascinating social scientist called Professor Robert Sapolsky. He's um, not so I far know. from here. I've, Love. I've met him several yeah, times. Amazing yeah. guy, isn't he? Wonderful guy. So he's up at Stanford. Looks like he's homeless. <laughs> <laughs> the dreads and the beard. He does kind of, yeah. And, and well, he actually ended up in a kind of weird homeless situation. When he was 21, he goes to 
live in Kenya with a troop of baboons, yeah. right? And uh, he was there to investigate this very interesting question, which is when are, which led to a breakthrough in how we understand human depression. When are baboons most stressed out, right? And it turns out male baboons, not female baboons, interestingly, but male baboons live in a very, very strict hierarchy. So say there's 40 men in the troop. Um, number one knows he's above number two. Number 11 knows he's above number 12 and so on. And where you are in the hierarchy determines stuff like... Um, you know, what you get to eat, whether you get to sit in the shade or in the sun, who you get to have sex with, it really determines your whole life, right? Mm. And Robert starts spending a load of time with this troop, and he identifies quite early, there's a kind of baboon at the top who he calls Solomon, like the king of the swingers, right? And at the bottom, there's a, a little baboon who he calls Job, after the most unlucky person in the Bible, um, who, you know, is just constantly being, having the shit kicked out of him by everyone else. They just, he barely gets to eat. They, his hair fell out because he was so stressed. And what, what um, Robert was trying to figure out was who in this troop is most stressed and why, right? And he does this by darting these baboons. He got very good at darting baboons in the back when they weren't looking and taking a blood sample from them because there's um, uh, a hormone called cortisol that our bodies become flooded with when we are stressed. And um, what he found was really fascinating. So what he discovered was there are two circumstances in which baboons are really super stressed. One is when their status is insecure, mm. when it's threatened. So like Solomon, when another baboon who he calls Uriah starts circling, Solomon is flooded with stress. The second is when your status is low, when you feel that you've been beaten. And this is where the breakthrough with depression comes. Um, Solomon and the other baboons who got pushed to the bottom would often do something that was really interesting. So they would keep their heads low, they would put their, their bottoms up, and they would kind of cower. In, this is called a submission response. And what's interesting is if you look at baboons and other primates who are showing a, a submission response, it looks an awful lot like human depression right? We say when we're depressed, I feel down. But one of the things interesting is, I don't think that's actually a metaphor. Mm. You physically, when I feel depressed, I physically want to keep my body low and down. Yeah. And what lots of scientists have hypothesized, people like Paul Gil Professor Paul Gilbert and Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who I interviewed, um, is that one of the things that human depression is, and I, I talk about nine causes of depression and anxiety and lost connections that I learned there is scientific evidence for, one of the things they think it is, is a kind of submission response. It's a way of saying when you feel beaten, when you feel defeated, leave me alone. Think about what, what Solomon was, what, sorry, what Job was trying to say in that troop. Okay, you beat me. I'm beaten. I accept it. Please stop hurting me. Leave right. me alone. And one of the things, one of the ways that I think we know that theory about human depression has some validity, is we can look at what happens to human depression when societies become more or less unequal. So we were saying about Norway, Norway has very few Solomons and very few Jobs. The United States has a few Solomons, a middle, and a lot of Jobs, right? And it's becoming, and there's been more Solomons and more Jobs and less, less in the middle. And what we know is, from the analysis of this, that as 
as inequality goes up in a country or within an individual US state, anxiety and depression go up by a considerable amount. Right. Because if you think about those two things, far more people feel their status is insecure. Even the people at the top feel their status is insecure. Look at Donald Trump. Have you ever seen a more insecure person? And a lot more people just feel beaten at the bottom, which is one of the reasons why we have this growing depression and anxiety crisis. And it's one of the reasons why this is one of the most challenging bits of research I did for the book. I went and spent a load of time in an Amish village in Indiana because there's all this evidence that the Amish have the lowest level of depression and anxiety of any American group of Americans. And one of the things, it's not the only thing, like we can talk about the others, but one of the things that's going on there is the richest Amish has exactly the same amount of money as the poorest Amish. The Amish are entirely egalitarian. There is no inequality among the... There's gender inequality. The women are treated a lot worse. But the, uh, among group men and among women, there's no inequality at all. And I think that tells you something. That's one of the key factors why they have such low depression and anxiety. Yeah, people often mis misunderstand and think that poverty causes depression. It's not poverty, it's inequality. If everyone is poor, equally poor, not only do you not have these triggers of inequality that you're talking about, but you also, getting back to the depressing rich hotels, you also <laughs> have much higher levels of social interaction. I don't yeah. know if you've read Re Rebecca Solnit's book, Disaster oh, um, Paradise. Paradise Built in Hell. I yeah. love that book. Fantastic yeah, Amazing book. book. And she talks about how these disaster sociologists repeatedly point out that the disasters are remembered as the greatest times in people's lives. Yeah, like earthquakes, exactly. Right? Because they meet their neighbors, they feel meaning, they feel connection, community. Exactly, that completely connects with so many things and lost connections. And think about it in this hotel. So one of the things that happens in this, these hotels, which as I say, I could never afford to stay in early stay when you know, uh, other people are paying, but it's so interesting. So one of the things that happens is, um, this social distance is unbreachable. So for example, the staff all know your name, so they say, Mr. Hari, we're so glad you're here. And, and I had this instinct to go, because, you know, this was my dad's job. My dad worked in hotels for a while, and then he became a bus driver. I want to go, and I, and I used to literally say this, and it actually would freak them out, so I don't do it anymore. I'd go, oh, no, you don't have to, you don't have to do that with me. Right. How, you know, I'd say, how's your day going? And they'd always go, I'm having a wonderful day. How's yeah. your day going, Mr. Hari? And I'd go, oh, no, you, you don't have to do that with me. How's your day really going? Right. And it would be, you would see this moment of, stop doing it, because it would actually cause anxiety in people they'd be like yeah. oh wait what am I meant to say in this situation because you're what people are in in these hotels is a artificial cushion of sycophancy and mm. affirmation which doesn't right. make you feel good because you know it's meaningless right it, but isn't that the class system isn't that what's going on in the UK as well you've you got know, a role you've got a status you know how to play your your role don't step out of it yeah and it's one of the reasons why um the british class system is so toxic but i would say actually if you look at the evidence about social mobility your ability to move from mm -hmm. so say the journey i've made in my life right my yeah. my my grandmother cleaned toilets right um and i get to have this really nice life but actually that story of mobility um has declined everywhere in the developed world but it's declined most quickly in the united states right. actually you are more like likely as a British person now, then this is a change. You're more likely as a British person who's born poor to be able to become yeah. middle class and wealthy than you are now in the United States. Right. So it was really interesting for me looking at these deeper causes of depression and anxiety. And as, as, as I said, this is a very personal journey for me. You know, one of my, 
you know, there were these two, there was this, how would I put it? There was this mystery that was really haunting me, right? Which we, we were kind of hinting at in what we're talking about, which was why have depression and anxiety seemed to have increased so dramatically throughout my lifetime? I'm now 39 years old. What's going on here? One in five Americans is going to take a psychiatric drug in their lifetime right? Extraordinary figure. One in four middle-aged women in the United States are taking chemical antidepressants in any given year. Not counting the number of us who are taking them because it's in the water supply. Yeah, well, if anyone who drinks water, tap water, so many people take antidepressants and are pissing them out that you are, if you drink tap water, you are consuming trace elements of antidepressants. We want to overstate that. That's not going to have a, uh, you know, an effect on your mood, but it's nonetheless, you're absorbing it. Um, And and, you know, I, I, this was so personal for me because I had gone to my doctor when I was a teenager and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me, that I couldn't regulate it, I couldn't control it. I found it very distressing and shameful. And my doctor had told me this entirely biological story about why I felt this way. He said, scientists know why you feel like this. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains makes people feel good. Some people just naturally lack it. They have a chemical imbalance. You're one of them. Um, we'll give you these drugs and, you know, that'll restore your serotonin levels to a normal right. person's. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief, both when I was given that story and when I started taking the drugs. Um, and for a couple of months, I felt radically better. And then this sense of pain started to bleed back through. I went back to the doctor. He said, well, clearly we didn't give you a high enough dose, gave me a high dose. Again, I felt relief. Again, the pain came back. Uh, again, I got a higher dose, and it was in this kind of cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years. At the end of which, I thought, why do I still feel this way, right? Yeah. I'm doing everything our culture tells me to do. So I ended up going on this big, long journey, over 40,000 miles, interviewing the leading experts in the world on what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. Is this after your first book was finished or sort of congruent? Uh, it was a bit of overlap, but the, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. It's a sign of how afraid I was to challenge the story I'd been told that I wanted to start writing this book seven years ago. And I figured it would be easier to write a book that required me to go and spend time with hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to look into this, right? When you have a, which was big my previous book. Big Pharma is scarier yeah. than El Chapo. <laughs> it's not that Big Pharma is scarier. That's not what I think. It's that is that if you have a story about your pain, even if that story isn't working very well, what it does is it structures your feelings about your distress. It's like putting a leash mm. on a wild animal, right? At least you know where it is. You've At least got you got a diagnosis. Exactly. It gives you something to hold on to. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And yeah. if you and if that if you feel that story is threatened you feel like you're letting that animal off the leash, right? Mm. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to go on this journey and learn what I learned had I not, for my previous book, Chasing the Scream, learned that actually the story about addiction, which had also played out in my family, um, the story I'd thought I'd known about addiction is not true, and actually there's a much, that it's just caused by the drug, it's just about the chemical hooks, that actually I learned this amazing evidence that actually addiction is much more about um, the deeper pain in the life of the person with addiction and much more about the environment and the cage we all live in than it is about the drug, although the drug, of course, plays some role. 
uh, I think if I hadn't learned that much more positive story, I wouldn't have had the confidence that if I, because at some level I'd known for a long time this chemical imbalance story was just way too simplistic, right? Why, why would it be rising so much? Right. If it was, I mean, it can't just be that all of our brains were, I mean, I would have known this years ago that it couldn't just be that our brains were all malfunctioning at the same time mysteriously, right? There must right. be something else going on. Although there are brain processes that are going on as well, obviously. Um, so I think it was that confidence. Yeah, it was around then that I began to... So there was some kind of overlap because there was overlap in terms of the the, the, the previous book was partly about how disconnection has caused distress. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's, yeah. a, there's a very strong current running through both books, which, at least to my way of seeing it, is that we live in a, a, a pathogenic society and that a lot of what we suffer from is... The, the narrative we're told is that it's either uh, human nature or it's uh, due to some personal failing or whatever, chemical imbalance. But in fact, it's because, I don't remember who said it, but it's, it, there's that line about how it's no great accomplishment to be healthy in a sick society because yeah, then yeah. you're just aligned with the sick values of the society. Yeah, it was Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher, uh, who said that. You're totally right. And, you know, there's an analogy that makes this so obvious that it's almost banal. We think about obesity, right? Right. So what we ended up with is we basically have, I think, a completely false dichotomy about all these debates. We either say it's just biological, it's just a problem with your brain, and there are real biological factors, of course, which I write about in Lost Connections, or we say it's an individual failing. That's the division I had in my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, until I went to my doctor, I thought the problem was all in my head, meaning I was weak, I was feeble. Right. And then I learned, then I thought the problem was all in my head in a very different way. It was in my skull, it was in my brain, it was a chemical imbalance. And what I learned from these nine causes of depression, anxiety, for which there's evidence and then looking at the solutions, is largely, now there are real biological factors that make you more sensitive to this, but largely it's not in our heads, it's in the way we live. And we think about that in relation to obesity and we know it immediately, right? There has not been a massive increase in obesity because Americans' biology has changed in the last 50 years. It's not that somehow we all developed stomach imbalances. Mm. And we've also not developed an obesity crisis because somehow Americans just became weak-willed and, you know, greedy. What's happened is the, the way the society functions has altered in a way that makes it much easier to eat, in a, well, makes it extremely hard to eat healthily mm -hmm. and extremely hard to live healthily, right? Yeah. It's the cities are designed so you can't walk. I mean, here in LA, and I've spent a fair bit of time in LA, <laughs> suggesting walking somewhere in LA, it's like suggesting a group hug to British people, right? There's just this look of <laughs> baffled horror, right? Right? Yeah. Um, you can't walk anywhere in this city. It's, yeah. it's basically impossible unless you live in Santa Monica or whatever. Yeah. Um, Plus so, the stress you mentioned earlier, the, the cortisol flooding yeah. creates fat. You're sitting in your car, inactive, stressed out. Yeah. Perfect environment for, for fat creation. Exactly. And what, so we all know with obesity, while there's a role for individual change, yeah. um, and there's the extremes a role for biological interventions, I'm not against things like you know uh, stomach stapling or whatever. Clearly, the solution is a social solution, right? Mm. We need to change our food supply system. We need to make it possible for people to buy and eat fresh and healthy food. We need to make it possible. It's not that Danish people, you know, Denmark has basically no obesity. They're not biologically different to us. They are socially different to us, right? Um, because they live in a different way. Um, so a very similar insight is necessary with depression and anxiety, right? I think one of the, the cruelest things we've done is we've put the onus for solving depression and anxiety just onto depressed and anxious people, right? Yeah. That's, that's incredibly cruel. Not least because actually precisely because it's not a technical fault in individuals. It's a social and spiritual crisis in the society. Um, you, you, you can't 
can't solve it at the level of the individual. Now, there are things you can do that might take the edge off it as an individual, and that has real value, whether that's chemical antidepressants or a whole range of individual interventions that I go through in the book. But that's not solving the problem, right? right. We need to solve the problem at that deeper level. The source. Exactly. You're arguing against the disease model of both addiction and anxiety and depression. It depends what you mean by disease. I want to be careful about this, because when you say addiction is not a disease, depression is not a disease. What some people hear is it triggers the thing and saying, wait, so you're saying it's my fault, it's right. an individual failing, right. right? So I think we could call it a social disease, mm -hmm. right? So it's important that I don't think it's a disease in the sense that it's not got a pathogen, a physical pathogen like, you know, I mean, there are real physical changes that happen when you become addicted or depressed, of course, but it's not caused by a physical pathogen. In that sense, it's not a disease. Um, it's certainly not just a brain disease, the mm -hmm. way that a lot of things are, the way we're, we're told. But at the same time, it, it, the things that most people mean when they say it's a disease, which is, I didn't choose this. I can't just change this on my own. It's not my fault and I shouldn't be stigmatized. All those things are, of course, absolutely right, true, right? right? So right. I think it's why I get that sounds like I'm saying tricks yeah, the answer. But, yeah. but once you understand that it has social causes, you begin to open up the possibility of social solutions. So I'll give you an example um, of a cause and a, and, a, and a solution for which there's really interesting scientific evidence. We are the loneliest culture there has ever been. Yeah. The average American, there's an incredible study that asked them, how many close friends do you have that you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing the research uh, many years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. Yeah. So you think about that. This is a society where more people have nobody to turn to when things go wrong than any other option. Uh, and I spent a lot of time interviewing And no <clears throat> social safety net. Exactly. Well, fewer than half of Americans, um, uh, half Americans are in such financial distress that they, they don't have $500 set aside yeah. if something goes wrong. So you think about the pervasive insecurity that that creates, right? And so many of the people that I interviewed. And I spent a lot of time with Professor John, interviewing Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who's the world's leading expert on loneliness. And he has proven that loneliness causes depression and anxiety, mm -hmm. right? I could tell you how if you want, because I think it's a great story. But so what I was interested in is going to think about how different that is to the story I was told. It's just a chemical imbalance, yeah. right? And, you know, it's Professor Cassiopo's not out on his own there. The World Health Organization says um, mental health is produced socially. It's a social indicator. It right. needs social solutions. Uh, the UN said we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances, right? So I was thinking, well, how do we act on that? What do we actually do with this? Because it can seem so insuperable when you hear it as a big issue and um i learned i got to know one of the kind of heroes of my book is a wonderful man called dr sam everington so sam is a, a doctor a general practitioner in a poor part of east london actually where i lived for many years although sadly he was never my doctor and sam felt really uncomfortable because he had loads of people coming to him with depression and anxiety and he'd been told in his training, even though he knew this was grotesque uh, simplification of the science, to tell people they've just got a chemical imbalance and just offer them drugs, right? Now, like me, Sam's not opposed to the drugs, but he just thought this, this, is, this is not solving the problem for these people, right? Yeah. One of the things he noticed is they were acutely lonely. So he pioneered this different approach. I'll give you an example through a woman he, got, he, he treated, who I got to know, a woman called Lisa Cunningham, who's an amazing person. Lisa had been shut away in her home with this crippling anxiety anxiety and depression for seven years. She barely left the house. She went to see Sam. Sam said, I'll prescribe you drugs, don't worry. 
I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like, just kind of scrubland. He said to Lisa, we'll turn out and support you, but what we want you to do is come a couple of times a week and with a group of depressed and anxious people, we're going to turn Dog Shit Alley into something beautiful. So they start turning up. Lisa was literally physically sick at the first meeting, right? They turn up... Um, and they just started to learn gardening. Yeah. They start to plant things. Some of them grew, some of them didn't. They put their fingers in the soil. They reconnected with the natural world, which is a really powerful antidepressant. Mm. There's incredible evidence for that. Yeah. They started to reconnect with each other. They did what human beings do when we get into groups, which is they began to solve each other's problems. For example, there was one guy in the group who was sleeping on the public bus. He was homeless. The group was outraged. They started pressuring the local authorities to get him housed. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in a mm. really long time. Also an antidepressant. Incredibly powerful yeah. antidepressant. We're a social species. We feel good when we help other people, not when we help ourselves. Um, and as Lisa put it to me, as the flower, as the as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom, right? Mm. And there was a study in in Norway of a very similar program that showed it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. Yeah. I think because it's dealing with the re two of the key reasons why they felt so terrible. They were disconnected from other people and they were disconnected from the natural world. Now, everywhere I went, from Sao Paulo to Sydney, from Berlin to Buenos Aires, I saw the most effective responses to depression and anxiety are where you deal with the reasons why we're in such pain in the first place, right? So I, I don't normally direct these conversations because they normally run 90 minutes <laughs> or more. And, and I would love to just let you run. But I'm, I'm sure, conscious sure. of the fact that we're short on time because Rupert Murdoch wants his money's worth out of you. <laughs> uh, um, so much of what you're talking about is, is stuff I'm very familiar with. I'm a psychologist. My wife's a psychiatrist. And I don't know how much you know about me. We wrote a book together about mm -hmm. sex and prehistory mm -hmm. and human relationships and prehistory. And yeah, that's so my bias. So much of what you're saying to me relates directly to how we evolved as a species. Highly interdependent, highly intimate, uh, small social groups where everyone knew one another, took care of one another. I'm in the final stages of a book now called Civilized to Death. I'll give you oh, a promotional t-shirt before we leave Brilliant. here. Um, and so this is a lot of what you cover is even down to Robert Sapolsky and, you know, his, um, you know, about the story where the, the upper echelon of the baboons all died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Kind of politically uh, interesting. But what I really, what I want to end with, because we only have 10 minutes left, is your relationship with ambition in light of all this knowledge that you have in light of these insights that the that the more money you have the more isolated you become the more uh, who was it i don't know if it was russell you're friends with russell brand aren't yeah you? yeah I, it might have been him who was talking about how what you worship kills you hmm. because I, I and I may, I may be misattributing this but it sounds like him it, if you worship fame, then you become dependent on fame. If you worship beauty, then you freak out about every wrinkle on your face. You worship money, you're worried everyone's trying to steal it from you. So how do you deal? You first came to my attention years ago, and I don't, I don't want to spend time on this, but you had a, a controversy in your career. There was a big uh, tumult, which seemed much ado about nothing from my perspective, but you faced, uh, you were very successful at a very young age, you faced a lot of um, 
you know, your your this this structure you had built came crashing down. You had to reinvent yourself. What is your relationship with ambition in light of these insights about how the higher you get on this mountain, the the more alone you are and the more miserable you'll become? So, uh, what drives you? So. Uh, one of the hardest causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about for, for Lost Connections was, goes exactly to this question. Um, so just like we were saying, we know that junk food has taken over our diets and has made us physically sick. I learned there's all this evidence that junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Right. And I found this very challenging to learn about. It was the, along with the evidence that childhood trauma causes adult depression, anxiety, this was the hardest thing for me to look at for the book. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about getting money and status, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's the gist of it, right? Seneca. <laughs> uh, but weirdly, no one had ever scientifically investigated this until this amazing man I got to know, Professor Tim Kasser, who's mm. at Knox College in Illinois, who if you haven't interviewed him, you should, he's got a new book out, you should definitely interview him. He's an mm. extraordinary person, Tim. So... Tim knew, it was already known when he became a psychologist 25 years ago, that there are essentially two kinds of human motivation, right? So if you think about, I don't know, if you play the piano, if you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that would be an intrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it to get anything out mm. of it. That's just, that's the thing you want to be doing, right? right? And now imagine you play the piano in a dive bar to make the rent and you don't like the dive bar, right? Or you play the piano because your parents are really pressuring you to be like a piano maestro. Or you're trying to impress a man, right? Or whatever, right? There's some piano fetishist out there. That, <laughs> that, that would be an extrinsic reason right. to play the piano. You're not doing it for the thing itself. You're doing it to get something out of it, right? Mm. And Professor Kasser discovered some really important things about this. Firstly, we're all a mix of these intrinsic and extrinsic values, and we change throughout our lives. But firstly, he discovered the more your life is dominated by extrinsic values, the more you will become depressed and anxious. Mm. It's a really significant effect. It's been found in dozens of studies now. And secondly... As a culture, we have become much more dominated by extrinsic values, right. right? So we've all moved much more towards this kind of hollow way of living where you think that life is about how you look to other people, your status, your money. Yeah. Your, you think about even just how something like Instagram pushes you to live extrinsically. The number of times I was on the beach in Santa Monica yesterday, and it was a beautiful day, and the number of people who confronted with this beautiful sunset, their response is not to stop and look at it, but to take out their phones and extrinsically display it and then do a little up dates like omg yeah. this looks great to make other people jealous right yeah. um they, they, they we've lost so anyway there are many reasons why extrinsic values make people more depressed and i could go through four of them in the book that professor Kasser has proven beyond scientific doubt um in terms of myself it's a really interesting thing isn't it because and I can talk also, if you want, about how, why we've become so much more dominated by these extrinsic values. And it's closely related to the way we live, advertising this whole machine that is constantly geared towards getting us to think right. extrinsically. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own surname. Yeah. Right? That's how deep we are immersed in this from the moment we're born, right? This machine that's all about distracting us from what's good about life. Who benefits from this? Well, there's a short-term obvious financial benefit to the machine, right? And the people at the top of the machine. But see, that's what I'm getting at. Rupert Murdoch is a miserable fucking guy. I'll say that. He's yeah. paying for your room. <laughs> I'll say it. Don't. He's an awful, <laughs> evil psychopath. And yeah. he's had a horrible effect on, on the well-being of millions yeah. of people. Uh, Donald Trump. I mean, I know I hang out with some very wealthy people and 
a lot of them are very unhappy. Yeah, they're the most miserable. I would, I, yeah, the very wealthy people are the most miserable as shit people you can ever imagine, right? right? With a few honorable right. exceptions. So no one, the winners yeah. are not winning the game. Yeah, so I'm yeah. saying who... Who benefits from this? Well, you game? mentioned Russell Brand. And, uh, you know, Russell tells this great. I mean, in telling me once, I don't think I'm giving anything away. I think I'm pretty sure he said this publicly. It was he went to the Oscars one year here, here, here in LA, obviously, or an Oscars after party, and he just remembered walking around it being like kind of Madden to swords. You know, everyone's famous. And just striking him how incredibly unhappy everyone was right. there. And I think one of the most revealing things about the nature of the game we're all meant to play is when you get to the top and realize the people who won the game are really miserable, right? right? It shows the whole nature of the game. It's why it's one of the deepest taboos to talk about the misery of these things. And I could really see that playing out in my own life. So I always had some intrinsic values. Um, I was never wholly driven by those things, of course. One of the things I really learned when I started um, working on Chasing the Scream was, how would I put it? So I wrote Chasing the Scream because I really wanted to understand what causes addiction and how you can help people who've got addiction problems. It was a very urgent question for me. It was playing out in my family and in some other people that I loved very deeply. So I had this really strong intrinsic motive to go all over the world, the places that have been unbelievably brutal towards people with addiction problems, like Arizona, where I went out with a group of women who made to go on a fucking chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict by that psychopath Joe Arpaio who Trump just pardoned uh, to the countries that have been most compassionate to people with addiction problems like Portugal where they decriminalised all drugs and spent the money on helping people and so I had this super strong intrinsic motive that just drove me through that process and then the book came out and suddenly you're thrown into this extrinsic thing of like so all the way through writing the book yeah. I really was able to not think that much about how people would react to it, right? Because because this was so personal and important to me. And because on that journey, I got to meet such incredible people who inspired me, who I'm still in touch with, who I just grew to love. And then the book comes out and you're suddenly jolted into this extrinsic mode of, I'm now going to be critically evaluated. Will mm. it sell better than this other person's? Will right. it and, and then again, I, you know, and I was able to transition from that into the intrinsic mode of, okay, now I want to understand this, this subject about depression and anxiety. And there's another book I've been working on around the, uh, at the same time, which will take much longer, uh, which is a biography of uh, Noam Chomsky, um, which again, these are things that I really care about. These things I want to understand for myself. And then you get jolted back into this extrinsic mode uh, where it's like, what's the Amazon? and ranking what's the so I've been trying to say to people like don't tell me what people are saying online don't tell me about the sales rankings and my publishers keep going but we've just got a bit of good news and I don't know don't they don't understand I genuinely don't want yeah, to know right. because the thing is if I start getting high off of that that's you know that there's the line they say in AA you know um, what brings you up can bring you down mm, right yeah maybe it's selling really well today there will be a time maybe next week maybe next month maybe <laughs> if I'm really lucky a year from now yeah. but it will not be selling well that's right it. and and so uh, for me the, the answer to that is look and I still have a lot of extrinsic motivation don't misunderstand me I'm not holding myself up as a great example of this but when I feel that that kind of sugar high coming on or the sugar low when you think oh someone's been nasty or whatever it's to go okay stop why did you do this right mm. you wanted to understand what causes depression and anxiety and some things that might help people to solve it so the other day I uh, gave a talk and, you know, people come up after all these talks and one person came up to me, she was a young woman, and she was hanging back and I went to her and I could see she was shaking and she, she hadn't left the house for three weeks and she 
really needed to think differently about depression and anxiety because she'd been trying the same thing for a long time. And I thought, right, this is why I wrote the fucking book, right? You're the person I wrote it for. If I get it to you, I remember very early in Chasing the Scream in Baltimore, uh, a woman came up to me at one of the readings at Red Emma's, a great bookshop there, uh, not reading a speech. And she said to me, it, I think it might even have been the very first event I did in the US, but that might be a, um, it was one of the first. And she said, my brother's got a really bad addiction problem. Um, I haven't seen him in seven years. I read your book, I'm taking for lunch next week. And I thought, this was before the book had become like, you know, successful. And I thought, right, if nothing else comes out of the fact that I did that three year journey, other than I got to learn this stuff and I got to meet these people and that woman is taking her brother for lunch, it was all fucking worth it. And so the key for me is to hold on to those moments and not get let the sugar high and not let the, but that's hard, right? We, we're all a mix, these things are both deep, these things are very deep in our natures, both these aspects of us. We need both, right? A human being who didn't attend to anything extrinsic would, would die out, right? Well, you need those things, um, but you also need, uh, if you want to reduce your depression and anxiety, you need to connect much more deeply with those, those more meaningful things. And it's a challenge, it's an ongoing challenge for me, for everyone else, you know, um, and particularly in the culture we live in where the structure of rewards is so geared towards, and also where it's such an unhappy, lonely, atomized society, yeah. where we people are so angry and there is so much rage. So if you do um, try to engage on this stuff, you will get a lot of love coming to you, but you will also get a lot of rage coming to you. Um, it's very, to navigate through that and hold on to your intrinsic motive and not get thrown off by either the praise, or you know that line, Rudyard Kipling, who was a terrible person in many ways, but the, the English poet who said, you know, uh, treat triumph and disaster as imposters just the same, mm -hmm. right? To hold on to that, that insight is not, not easy. And I can feel it at the moment. I can feel myself, I have been, you know, my book came out, um, three weeks ago, I think, and I'm much more extrinsically motivated at the moment, and as a result, I'm much more anxious, right? And I'm much more depressed, and I don't feel so good, right? Yeah, and you're doing a podcast with me instead of getting a nap. Uh, <laughs> no, this is pleasing. If this is like you, you tired, man, wow. <laughs> the, no, but I feel like you are connected to the intrinsic reasons why, yeah. why you know, you're interested in these questions. Yeah. What's harder is when you get interviewers who, you know, it's... Um, how would I put it? You know, uh, this is not, uh, this has been harder to talk about than my previous book. We, we, we had addiction in my family, so it was not an impersonal subject to me, but it, it feels weird to kind of prostitute your pain and go around. To, now, I'm not talking about it for money. That's not why I'm doing it. But it is a weird thing to kind of go on, endlessly talk to strangers about a very deep and painful mm -hmm. thing, especially in contexts where the interviews are kind of adversarial, where it's like, well, how can this be true? And you're like, this is not a mode in which any sane person talks about depression, right? right. It's kind of aggressive interlocutor who's like, this can't be right, that can't be because that's not... No real person, if you talk to them in any real context, talks to you like that about depression, unless they've got some very strong vested interest, like they're, you know, very committed to the biomedical yeah. model that the UN has said is, you know, based on a misreading of the science. Well, you're, you're obviously motivated by trying to alleviate suffering through knowledge, which, you know, as long as you stick to that, you, you can do no wrong, I think. 
Well, thank you. I mean, look, I've got other motives. I want my book to sell. I want to make money. Sure. I, it's also, so I don't want to hold sure. myself up as like some yeah. Gandhi-like, uh, although actually Gandhi killed his wife, which is a fact no one ever talks about. But the, the, so Gandhi's not a great example. But the, some, you know, it, it's not about... In a sense, it, the cheap thing is to say you can secede from the struggle and just be one or the other. Mm. You'll, no human can secede from the struggle. We're right. all part of this struggle. This struggle plays out throughout our lives. What you can do uh, is try to alter your environment in ways that will make you less prone to being knocked off course by these junk values. So, for example... Uh, I went to Sao Paulo where they banned advertising, external advertising, yeah. to see if it would improve people's mental health, right? It's really interesting. It, 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 people say their heads are clearer, right? There haven't been good scientific mm. studies of that. That you can, There's a degree to which we can alter our environments uh, as individuals. There's a really big degree to which we can alter our environment collectively, right? Um, and, you know, just as I know we've got to wrap up in a second, but just as a last thing, you know, the election of Donald Trump is the purest expression of that crisis of extrinsic values that I can think about. Trump is the most purely extrinsically motivated person I've ever seen. There's an interview with Melania Trump, I need to look this up to get the wording right, but in 2009 she was invited to NYU, I can't imagine why, and she was asked by one of the students, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? And I think you see in that moment one of the key reasons, not the only one, but one of the key reasons why extrinsic values make us so unhappy and anxious. So Melania knows if she gets fat, it's out. Howard Stern said to Donald Trump if, if she, she was burned old, in a fire. Yeah. Which she will. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hopefully she'll get old after he's dead. But the the um, but the the I think she's probably going to manage that one. But yeah. the but you know, and Trump knows if he lost his money, if he lost his status, she'd be gone, right? Yeah. So you you see how that what that does to your relationships? It makes them all pervasively insecure. Now yeah. compare that to someone just saying, "Well, actually, I would marry him if he was homeless because I love him." Right? Not only insecure, but but essentially false because yeah. the relationship the person has with you isn't with you. Yeah. It's with a false mask you're wearing yeah. of the wealthy man, of the young, beautiful woman, of whatever it is that you're dressed up as. It's fundamentally hollow. Yeah. Um, and like his businesses, in fact. Right. And the the that fund and like his political agenda, I would say, but that's a good different conversation. The 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 that fundamental hollowness um, will make you feel terrible. Yeah. Will make you depressed and anxious. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I, man, I wish I could hang out all day oh. with you, but I know you've got stuff to do. Johan Hari, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I should just say, can my publishers tell me off if I, if I don't say this? That What's the little spiel they told me to say? <laughs> if you want any more information about the book, uh -huh. uh, you can find out what Elton John, Hillary Clinton, Russell Brand, Naomi Klein, and lots of other people said about it at www.thelostconnections.com. You can take a quiz to see how much you know about depression and anxiety. You can listen to the audio of loads of the people we talked about from that right. Amish village to Professor Tim Kasser, to um, so many people. Uh, and you can uh, follow the book's Facebook page at facebook.com slash thelostconnections. I did an interview recently where they he said to me, like, what's your Facebook? What's your Twitter? What's your Instagram? And then they said, what's your Snapchat? And I was like, I am a 39-year-old man, right? The only 39-year-old men on, on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, yeah, exactly. right? You should be profoundly suspicious of 39-year-olds on. So that's my limit, right? I'll do the, I will yeah. extra Whore myself on three mediums, but not the fourth one, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I don't do Facebook. That, I really, that's, that's, I that's why you're line. sane and look cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Cheers.
All right. So that's where Johann died on the cross. But then we took him down and buried him in a cave and he was resurrected in my car going south on the 405. So you'll hear the resurrection part of the podcast in a minute. But I'm going to play another song by Simon Van Gent. This is a, a, a tune that has haunted me for years since I first heard it. I've always loved this song, and he was kind enough to bring his guitar when we recorded the the episode. Check it out in the archives. Uh, he plays a few songs live. This is one of them. It's called Dream Boats, and he's just sitting at uh, Casilda's daughter's table in Cape Town playing this uh, on request, and it's... It's just uh, an amazing song. I, I hope you enjoy it. Dream Boats. And then we're in the car heading south on the 405.
Black box. It's a black box. <clears throat> All right, I think we are recording at this point. Hey, hey, yeah, looks like it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> this is some sort of bizarre resurrection episode here. We we ended by saying how much I'd love to hang out with Johan more, and then it turned out he was going somewhere, and I could drive him, and so we're in the car going down the four hundred five. In this very bleak, alienated landscape. You know, I'm thinking about as we're driving through Orange County, towards Orange County, I'm thinking about this, um, this really interesting research I learned about for the book about um, how disconnection from the natural world causes depression and anxiety. My friend, Dr. Isabel Benke, who you should definitely meet, she comes to LA sometimes, she's a um, primatologist, and she... She did this. She told me about this interesting research that I then looked into more. Oh, and she does bonobo research. Yeah, yeah. She's Isabel is literally one of the best people in the world, and she (laughs) she's incredible. She did so. She did this initial work in a zoo. She's Chilean. Initial work in zoos with bonobos, and what she discovered was, she well, she didn't discover it, but she knew. She observed that basically animals in zoos deprived of their habitat regularly go crazy right parrots will rip out their feathers horses will start obsessively swaying elephants will take their tusks which are this source of great pride in the wild and they'll grind them down to like bloody stumps right orcas will attack their keepers exactly well i think that's actually more just rational (laughs) that's not that's not depression that's like you know orcas have never killed a human in the wild right that's really interesting yeah that's really because and isabel basically argues that one of the things that's going on with depression is that we have been deprived of our habitat and it is causing this kind of profound distress, right? There's a really interesting study that looked at, there's lots of scattered suggestive research about this. There's been very little sustained research because you can't monetize uh, exposure to nature. So there's not much incentive in our culture to research this. But one of the things, uh, one of the ones that really stuck with me was in the, the state prison in Michigan, by coincidence has um, one part of the prison looks out over like bare concrete and another part looks out over kind of lush greenery and it's just random which one you ended up in the people who looked out over lush greenery were 23% less likely to develop mental health problems than the people who looked out over concrete and as Isabel says it's our fucking habitat right it's who we are it's the species we are you know, there's research um, that's congruent with that showing that people who are in randomly assigned hospital rooms with mm. the same, after the same procedure, heal faster if they're looking out at trees yeah. rather than parking lots. But, and this, a subset of this research, which I think is really related to something I know you're really interested in, which is about psychedelics. So one of the reasons, so there's this debate about why 
exposure to nature causes relief from depression and anxiety. And there seem to be many things going on. Um, and I talk about several of them in the book, but one of the ones that really interested me is, so one of the things that happens when human beings are exposed to uh, na na scenes of nature, the natural world, is a sense of awe, right? You get a sense that you are small, the world is big, and one of the things that depression your is... Your problems don't matter that much. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that depression is, is being trapped in a sense of your own ego, yeah. finding it very hard to see beyond your own problems, and senses of awe tend to, you know, trigger a different way of thinking about that. And one of the things that I only really began to understand that when I started talking to people about the research about psychedelics and depression and anxiety. So, you know, as you know better than I do, until the mid-60s, there's all this interesting research that was done into giving alcoholics, depressed people, LSD. And it, had, it wasn't done to the standards we want scientific research to be done today, but it nonetheless had very promising early results. And then it's all shut down by Nixon and it just doesn't happen again. And about six, seven years ago, this research was reawakened. It begins again. So I went and interviewed the scientists who've been reawakening this research. I interviewed the teams at UCLA here in Los Angeles, um, team at NYU, some of the people from the team at NYU, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, yeah. at UCL in London, uh, and Oslo and in Sao Paulo. And there are loads of fascinating things to say about this and really interesting suggestive research from the early relatively small studies we have. But there was a subset of the findings that totally fascinated me and I think it's related to this thing about nature. So um, Johns Hopkins, they gave, they took people who were chronic long-term smokers, who'd been long-term smokers more than 25 years and had tried to stop in all sorts of ways. I thought a lot about my mother, who's a chronic chain smoker. She, um, there's a photograph of me and her where I'm six months old, she's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach, right? Oh. <laughs> and when I found this picture a couple of years ago and showed it to her, she was like, you were a difficult fucking baby. I needed that cigarette, you cunt. Uh, uh, so she was completely unrepentant about this. But That's got to be on a book jacket. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a David Sedaris kind of thing. Well, I should say that the C word has a very different meaning in Scotland where my yeah, mother's from yeah. than, than it does here. But the, uh, it's much less severe. But the... But the, 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 so they take these people who are chronic long-term smokers like my mother and they gave them three doses of psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms, over I think it was a four-month period. And what was incredible is 80% of them, 80% stopped smoking, right? And at first, I kind of misunderstood this research. I interviewed Roland Griffiths who did it and the rest of the team, Albert Garcia and um, lots of the other, other people there. Well, I thought what they were saying was, um, you know, I thought, I, so you remember when we had people talk about chemical antidepressants in the 90s, like it flips a chemical switch, you know, all these things. But the subset that was so interesting is, so most people when they take psilocybin have what we would call a spiritual experience, right, of some kind. But there's a, some people don't have any spiritual experience and, and obviously there's a variety of intensity of spiritual experiences. Some people have a super intense spiritual experience, some people have a very mild one. And what they found at Johns Hopkins is the positive outcomes like smoking cessation, relief from depression and addiction, correlate exactly with the intensity of the spiritual experience. So if you have no spiritual experience, you don't have these benefits. Right. If you have a super intense spiritual experience, you have the benefits that last longer. What that tells us is that what the drug experience does, what the psychedelic experience does, it's not that it flips a chemical switch, it's a learning experience, right, as one of them put it to me. What it does is it gives you a taste of what it's like to be deeply connected to nature, 
to other people, to the world around you, to lower your ego walls and feel deeply connected. Now, what you have to then do is integrate that into your life, right? Beyond the psychedelic experience. So in, for example, in London, where they did the depression studies, um, Robin Carhart-Harris, who, who led the depression study along with my friend, Professor David Nutt, um, oh, you know. Yeah, I love David. He's an amazing wow. person. Yeah, very interesting. So that they give these people uh, psychedelics and it gives them a really significant relief from depression. But he told me about one woman who took part in the study who she worked in a office job in a kind of slightly grim English seaside town, right? Kind of the British equivalent to Atlantic City. And she gets this incredible sense of connectedness and connection to nature and the people around her. And she's like, this has changed my life. And then she goes back to her grim office job and you just can't live according to a sense of deep connection in that office job, right? Uh, you're constantly being reminded, in fact, status does matter, that you know, you've know you got to be in your place, all of those things. And so her depression comes back. We don't live in ways, most of us, that are compatible with these insights, which is why we need to listen to those insights and change our societies in ways that actually make it possible to live in a way that's you know compatible with a sense of deep connection. So you and I are in a similar place, as we suggested in the earlier part of this interview, where I think we both look at the way we're living uh, with a lot of skepticism and see that the values that you, you describe, junk values, values that are being promoted by Western society lead to unhappiness and social isolation and physiological distress yeah. and trauma of all sorts. What practical advice? I mean, I'm sure you get people saying, okay, what should I do? Sure. What, what do I do with this? And it's one thing to say, well, we need to change society in a way to be more congruent with, you know, healthy values and so on. But until society changes, what do individuals, what does a 25-year-old person listening to this podcast right now, starting out in life, what practical advice can you give them? Because I come up blank, I have so to tell I, you. I think what you just said is based on a false division, right? Which is there's this idea that society changes and then there's these individuals. Society changes because individuals fight for it, right? Society, one of the things I learned is that the struggle for this change is the solution, right? It's a big part of the solution. Yeah. Coming together to fight for something better, acknowledging that the way we're living is causing this depression, that if you're depressed and anxious, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs needs and then fighting for something better is part of the solution so part of look but, but how do you fight to to have a better job how do you fight to have a, you know to live in a more connected world it's i'll give you a very concrete you example, know right? how do you fight to have uh, friends who aren't looking at social media all the time so i'll give you a very concrete example yeah. one of the, so i was learning these things intellectually in many places and i'll talk about this example and then i'll talk about how i think we can we can generalize this, right? Um, I learned a lot of these ideas intellectually, but only they really fell into place for me in Berlin, in, in a place called Kotti. Um, so in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in, in Berlin, a woman called Nuria Cengiz put a sign in the window of her ground floor apartment. And the sign said, I, something like, I got my eviction notice, I'm gonna be thrown out of this apartment on Wednesday. On Tuesday, I'm gonna kill myself, right? And it's a big housing project, no one knew each other. Um, it's such a slightly weird area where um, 
when they built the Berlin Wall in 1961, when they threw up the Berlin Wall, this was the bit of West Berlin that kind of jutted into East Berlin. It was like a tooth. Hmm. So if the Soviets had invaded, it would have been the front line. So basically no one wanted to live there. So it was basically an area that was lived in by recent Turkish immigrants, gay people and squatters or punk squatters all of whom looked at each other with like incomprehension right so this big housing project no one knows each other people start to knock on Nuria's door Nuria's at the time is in her early 60s she was in a hijab she's a very religious Muslim and they're like do you need any help and she was like fuck you I don't want any help and shut the door in their face and a lot of people on this housing project were pissed off because their rents have been going up there have been a lot of evictions and there's this big thoroughfare that goes into the centre of Berlin, into, into Mitte, um, that's just outside, that just runs through the housing project. And some people got chatting and they were like, look, if we just block the road for a day, you know, we'll just put some stuff in the middle of the road and we wheel Nuria out and we protest. Probably the media will come. Probably there'll be a bit of a fuss. They'll probably let Nuria stay in her apartment. She won't kill herself. Should we do it? So a group of the people who lived there who didn't actually know each other very well, in many cases didn't know each other at all, they do it, right? And Nuria is a bit bemused, but she's like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway, I may as well do it. So they wheel her out, and the media did come, and it was a bit of a fuss in Berlin that day. And at the end of the day, the police come along, and they said, okay, you've had your fun, take it down. But the people there were like, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she can stay, and you know what? We actually want a fucking rent freeze, right? We can't go on like this either. Uh, but they knew that the minute they left this barricade, the police would come and take it down. So there was a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of my favourite people at Gotti. Tanya is, had come as a kind of punk squatter years before. She wears tiny miniskirts, even in Berlin winters, which is like properly hardcore. Uh, Tanya happened to have in her apartment a uh, klaxon, you know, one of those things that makes a loud noise. So she brought it down and she's like, OK, what we're going to do, we're going to drop a timetable and we're going to man this barricade and if the police come to take it down before we've got a guarantee Nuria can stay we'll just let off the klaxon and we'll all come down and stop them right mm. so what happened is people all over Cotty who would never have met start signing up right and Nuria and Tanya were paired together this woman in a hijab with this woman in a tiny miniskirt right and the, I think they did the Tuesdays and Thursday night shifts and you know they sit there and it's super awkward right they seem to have nothing in common And as the nights went by, Tanya and Nuria start talking to each other. They in fact discovered that they were incredibly similar. They had both been runaways to Koti. Nuria had come to Koti when she was 17 years old from Turkey, from her village in Turkey. Her husband stayed behind and her job, she took the kids and they had two children, I think, and her, her job was to raise enough money to send back home for her husband, right? So she's working flat out with these two kids on her own and then she got news that her husband had died in Turkey. She told Tanya someone she'd never, something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people that her husband had died of a, of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was a disease of poverty. She'd been really ashamed. Tanya started telling Nuria stuff she never talked about. She had come to Koti when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by her middle-class family. She lived in a squat. She got pregnant when I think she was, I think she was 17. She was on her own when she was 17 with a child in Koti. They both had these incredibly similar experiences. All over Koti, there were these people who would never have met who were discovering how much they had in common. There was a young kid called Mehmet, who was a Turkish-German lad who, who loved hip-hop. He kept being nearly thrown out of school. He was paired with a grumpy old white guy who was a Stalinist who said he didn't really agree with direct action and what we needed was Stalin to come back. But they start talking that 
these these strange pairings were happening directly opposite the housing project there's a, a gay club called Zudblock it's run by a guy called Richard Stein who I love as well who to give you a sense it's quite a hardcore gay club Richard's previous club was called Cafe Anal which gives you a sense of what it was like <laughs> and Richard was like you guys can have all, we'll get gave all the furniture from the gay club said you guys can just use this for the barricade said why don't you guys have all your meetings in the club right we'll give you free drinks we'll, we'll sort it out we really support you when when they'd first set up this gay club, as you can imagine, a lot of conservative Muslims there, they'd been really angry, the windows had been smashed. And even the like lefties who lived in Cotty were like, look, we're not gonna get these Muslims to come and sit in a gay club underneath posters for fisting night, right? But actually, everyone starts taking these small steps, right? The uh, people start talking to each other who would never have spoken. They start having the meetings in Zublok. After this had gone on for a few months, <clears throat> about six months of the protest, one day this guy turned up at the, the protest, his name was Tunkai, and Tunkai was in his early 50s and he has, um, clearly has kind of cognitive development problems. Um, and he'd been living homeless, it was clear he'd been living homeless, and he started just saying, can I help out here? And he starts helping out, they'd actually built a permanent structure blocking the street um, by that time, because a lot of the people who live in Kotti are construction workers. So they built this permanent structure and, and everyone just loved Tunkai. He's just got a really lovely energy about him. Like he was one of the people who united the gays, the Muslims and the and the punks, right? Were you there when this was I happened? spent a lot of time at Koti. I, I think they ah. think I'm crazy because I kept going back and I would just turn up like once every six months and get so overwhelmed by emotion. And I think one of them, uh, Sandy, said to me one day, Johan, do you have allergies? Your eyes seem to water quite a lot. Mm. But so anyway, Tunkai became this kind of state. We actually started sleeping in the in the the, the 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 thing they'd built and after he'd been there for quite a while one day the police came and um they would do that every now and then to like inspect it and and Tunkai misunderstood he thought that they were arguing he doesn't like it when people argue so he went to try to hug the police officer uh -oh. but they thought he was attacking them they arrested him mm. and that was when they discovered this thing about Tunkai Tunkai had actually been kept in a psychiatric hospital in a literal padded cell for 20 years he'd escaped he'd been living homeless for I think it was six months before he found his way to Cotty so they take him back to this padded cell the whole of the Cotty movement turned itself into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other end of Berlin. And the psychiatric hospital is just completely baffled, right? They've got this sudden, all these Muslims in hijabs, these gays and these punks turning up saying, we want Tunkai back. He belongs with us. We love him. And this had never, you know, they'd never had anything like this in their history of this hospital, right? And it took quite a long time. It took them months to get Tunkai released back to them. And they had to go through this big, long bureaucracy. But anyway, many things happened at Cotty. And there's a, many ups and downs in this story. But the long and short of it is that um, they started a referendum initiative. They got the largest, because anyone can do that in Berlin. You can get something on the citywide referenda if you get enough signatures. They got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. And the city council was so afraid of the measure because it was so popular that they conceded most of what it, what it, what it wanted. Um, and when I went to go and see Nuria, the last time I ever saw her, she said to me, you know, look, I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. But I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all along and I would never have known. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really struck me, there was a woman Another Turkish German woman there called Neriman, is a bit younger than Nuria, who said to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, 
what we called home was was our village, right? And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what you call home is your apartment. And if you're lucky, your family. Mm, and then this whole you, protest... You quoted time, this yeah. in Lost Connections. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I remember that line, yeah. Yeah, she said this, this whole... Yeah. This protest happened and again, this whole place became my home mm. and she she talks about how she realized that she had been homeless all these years she'd been living in the western world mm. that in a sense we're all homeless here yeah. because our sense of belonging is not it, what we what we call home is too small to meet our sense of belonging and one of the things i really took from cotty there were so many things is that it's just below the surface right these needs, these desires, they are just below the surface. It doesn't take much for people to see what they're missing. Tanya said, said to me, I remember sitting outside Zublock one day, the gay club with her one day, and her saying, you know, when you sit in your home, and the exact words are in the book, it's not exactly how she said it, but it's pretty close. When you sit in your home <clears throat> and you feel like shit, you think it's just you, right? But what happened here is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And when you fight you, you, and you find other people who feel like you, you begin to feel strong, right? And it struck me so powerfully when I was speaking to Tanya that day, how many of these people they had been, you know, Nuria was literally suicidal, loads of them were on antidepressants and it struck me, Mehmet was kept being, the Turkish dad kept being nearly thrown out of school, they said he had ADHD, actually that went away when it turned out he had a community to listen to him and support him. So many, uh, you know, Tunkai was shut away in an actual padded cell. So many problems that are insoluble when you have a, a culture of atomized, isolated individuals become soluble when we are together as a group. Those people didn't need to be drugged, they needed to be together. They needed to be living in the way that human beings evolved to live, in a tribe, in a mm. group. And when they found that, so many of their problems, you know, began to clear up, right? It's not paradise. There's still plenty of things wrong in Cotty, like everywhere. But, but, And so the reason I say that in terms of what can people do, if you remain an atomized, isolated individual, the truth is there is nothing you can do. Right. Or very, very little you can do, right? Because the problem is that we think about it in those terms. A society of atomized, lonely people taught that life is about money and stuff, who spend their time screaming at each other through screens, is going to feel like shit. And I understand the desire to say, well, I want to stay in that society and I just want a lever that I can pull that will make me uniquely feel better. When I learned that chemical antidepressants play some real role but don't solve the problem for most people, I was really angry and I'm like, well, okay, if that's not the lever that works, give me something like a pill that I can do that will take 20 seconds a day and solve the problem. And the hard truth is there is nothing like that. It what? does require social change, but right. we can do... Look, and one of the reasons I'm optimistic about that is I'm a gay man, right? I've lived through the most incredible social transformation. Yeah. I recently showed one of my nephews, who's 17, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> things that used to be on the front page of newspapers <clears throat> about gay people when I was the age he is now, yeah. which is not so long ago, right? And he literally couldn't believe it. He said, did people ring the police, right? Right. And that did not imagine saying to gay people, well, what can I do as an individual to make the pain of being gay less bad in 1950 or 1990? Well, to be honest, as an individual isolated, probably nothing. Yeah. But, or, or not nothing, but little. But as a social movement that demands change, you can literally change the world, right? You're, I think it's in the conclusion of Lost Connections where you talk about Andrew Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, mutual. 
I wouldn't say he's a friend, but I've hung out with him. I know him. He's you're much closer to him. But the story you tell about him thinking he was at the end of the road and he was at this uh, what the hell moment. And he uh, wrote that book about gay marriage. Wait, and it's this incredible story. In 1994, yeah. it's, the height, it's the height of the AIDS crisis. Andrew's been diagnosed as HIV positive. He's raised in this... Excuse me. He's raised in this super homophobic environment. And his first thought when he was diagnosed with HIV is, I deserve this. Yeah. And he... His friends are dying all around him. His closest friend, Patrick, died. He watched Patrick die. And Andrew, this is before AZT and then protease inhibitors, Andrew thought he had a couple of years to live. So he went to Provincetown, the little gay town at the tip of Cape Cod, to do what he was sure would be the last thing he did before he died. He decided to write a book about this crazy utopian idea that he would never live to see, but he thought maybe generations later someone might pick this up. The idea he wrote the first book ever to advocate was gay marriage, right? And when I get pessimistic and I'm like, look, we're up against these forces of depression and anxiety are really deep in our culture, a lot of them. It's a big fight to challenge them. I try to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew, okay, Andrew, you're not in 1994 in Provincetown. Okay, Andrew, you're not gonna believe me. 25 years from now, yeah. you're gonna be alive. Good news, that's not the best thing about this. I'll be with you just afterwards just after the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book in their judgment making gay marriage mandatory for the entire United States and the next day well not mandatory well um, <laughs> not man oh yeah mandatory uh, legally yeah no, that would be different that's a, maybe mandatory but yeah don't uh, worry legally, all legally yeah exactly the gays are coming <laughs> exactly legally yeah he would have been surprised by that one uh, legally uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for uh, 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 yeah, yeah. It, make it mandatory for states to permit gay marriage they have to allow it yeah, yeah, yeah make it mandatory for every state to yeah. permit gay marriage yeah. that's what I meant yeah <laughs> um, and, you know, the next day, you'll be invited by the President of the United States to a White House that will be lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you've achieved with so many other people. And by the way, that President, he's going to be black, yeah. right? That would have sounded like the most ridiculous science fiction you can imagine in 1994. But it lived to, Andrew lived to see it, right? Yeah. Um, so incredible change. And I think that actually the pessimism about the possibility of change is a symptom of our collective depression, right? It's a symptom of what a depressed and isolated culture we are. Okay, but let me let me push back on that a little. Because sure. I feel like, to some extent, uh, optimism is a symptom of our uh, cultural bias toward progress, which is... You know, I, what I say in Civilized to Death, there's a section on hope and, and uh, optimism when I make a distinction. But uh, the people who own casinos love you to have to, to have undying optimists, right? They, they love people who think it's always going to get better. Never give up. Never give up is the way you lose all your money. And it seems to me that I agree with you in terms of collective action and, and you know, even if even if it doesn't succeed, the people who are involved still bring meaning and value into their own lives, right? If it doesn't succeed on a macro level, mm -hmm. there's a micro value in it. But on a larger, you know, looking at it from 30,000 feet up, 
it seems, I'm, I think David Brower, the fav- famous environmentalist, said that when we win, it's a stay of execution. When they win, it's forever. <laughs> and I kind of, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I think that there's a value in a clear and honest diagnosis. And it seems to me that the values of Western society are directly destructive of the very things that lead to well-being in human beings. You know, I say in the book, it's like we live in a zoo. We have to live in a zoo. There's not enough empty space for us to live as wild creatures anymore. But we live in the Calcutta Zoo. And all I'm trying to get people to do is redesign it into the San Diego Zoo. You know? <laughs> I like that. Um, but, but what do you think about the fact that the values of society are against this sort of collective action, right? The, the entire economic impetus is toward fragmentation and isolation to increase consumption. I think there's a lot in what you just said, and it's worth going through it a bit. So there are many value systems that play out in our society and culture. So you're right that the values of the economic system are very much towards that. But let's think about where we are, right? What is the most popular, what are the two most popular programs in the United States? What are the two most popular things in the United States? They are Medicare and the military, right? Now set aside what the military is used for, which is obviously not a positive thing in almost all cases, not every single case, but most cases. But let's think about Medicare, right? Medicare is by far and away the most popular thing after the military in the United States. Um, Medicare is a system of collective More provision. popular than blowjobs? <laughs> I don't know, blow I'd like to see the data. Right? Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, if you gave me a choice between you won't get any Medicare when you're old and you'll never get sucked off again, I'm not sure how I would choose. Right? It would be a difficult one. <laughs> it wouldn't be an easy up. choice, right? <laughs> the, but the... Uh, but the, so you think about that, right? The, so the value, I don't, you don't want to concede that the whole nature of the society is dominated by the values you and I oppose, because that's not true, right? Yeah. Actually, most people in their daily lives, a lot of the time, live by the better values that we advocate. Well, I agree, but the, but now you're talking about people. I'm yeah. talking about the, the value, sure. the society as a super organism. See, sure. I, I've got this crazy theory that we are embedded within a super organism. Uh, or within a series of superorganisms, which are institutions. Sure. And just as uh, the bacteria is embedded within our gut and keeps us mm. alive, and that those institutions have agendas that run counter, in many cases, to our own well-being. Oh, that's undoubtedly, that's undoubtedly true. And I think when you were talking about progress, one of the important things to ask is progress towards what, right? Right. Because I agree. Progress towards a society that's ever more neoliberal, where we define progress as, you know, concreting over even more, you know, like, of course, that's that's a horror show that's leading to the destruction of our habitat. And, And a species embarked upon destroying its habitat should be depressed and anxious, right? Because that's a signal that that we should honor that we're doing something catastrophic, right? But I would in place of that a different model of progress which is progress towards living in a way that's compatible with our underlying human nature so everyone listening to this knows that they have natural physical needs right you need uh, food you need water you need clean air you need uh, you know warmth if I took those things away from you you'd be in real trouble real fast right yeah there's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs right Mm -hmm. you've got to feel you belong 
You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people value you and see you. And you've got to feel that you've got a future that makes sense. And as a culture, there's plenty of things we are good at, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And that's one reason why we have these interlocking crises, whether it's our depression crisis, our anxiety crisis, our addiction crisis, <clears throat> the rise of Donald Trump, who's the dystopian expression of these extreme unmet needs and the sickness of the culture made flesh. Um, but I would define we can progress towards meeting those needs, right? Which is, in many ways, a, you know, the last line of The Great Gatsby. And so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I think you, know, you referenced the primatologist earlier who said we're in the wrong habitat. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's what I feel. That's what the Civilized to Death book is all about. It's we're. I hope that in a sort of hero's journey, Joseph Campbell sense, are, we're returning to where we began and know the place for the first time. We are, I hope that the, the des destination of this incredibly destructive, painful journey of history is to return to an essentially hunter-gatherer way of life, uh, you know, assisted with solar power and global communications technology and so on. But I'm not convinced that we are because I think the central mechanisms of Western culture are going, driving us in the wrong direction. They're ratcheting us ever closer to extinction and... They are at the moment, but Rebecca Solnit, who you mentioned before, has this great line, I think it's in the new introduction to her book, Hope in the Dark, because mm. the thing about pessimism is it's... The reason why pessimism is wrong is because it's certain about what the future will be. Yeah. Maybe the future will be terrible, right? Just like optimism. She, you know, Chomsky yeah. has this thing, he says hope is like Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager is the medieval theological idea that um, you may as well believe in God because if you get to heaven and you believed in God you'll get rewarded and if you don't and there's no God <laughs> you don't lose anything right I don't agree with that but Chomsky says hope is like Pascal's wager you may as well believe in it because if you believe in it you've got a chance and if you don't believe in it you're definitely fucked right yeah but that 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 presupposes that hope and belief are voluntary conditions that you can choose to believe something or choose to hope and I, I hear people say that all the time like oh I'm a I'm a you know incurable optimist I have to or people say I have to believe things are going to get better because I have grandchildren well that's nonsense right that's your emotional need to believe something which has no relationship with whether that thing is true or not and in yeah. fact can obscure your vision and your ability to make smart decisions to bring that closer to reality right I think you're right one of the one of the key insights that I found really challenging when I was working on Lost Connections that I really came to. I'll give you an analogy. It's a trivial analogy, but I think it makes sense. One of the things that's viscerally shocking to Europeans when we, and as you know, I spend a lot of my life here, but now, but the, one thing that's viscerally shocking to Europeans in about the US is the existence of indigestion pills, right? I remember the first time I was <laughs> offered an indigestion pill, I literally said to the person, I remember it so clearly, I was in New York yeah. and I said, no, but wait, <laughs> indigestion is a signal from your body that you're eating too fast, right? Yeah. You don't want to get rid of that signal. That signal's telling you something really important. You want to listen to that signal and slow down or you're going to get sick, right? right. It's not a malfunction, it's a function, right? And in a similar way, what I came to realize is these depression and anxiety crises, which are much, much more painful than indigestion, are signals, right? They are telling us something's gone wrong and you need to listen to what's gone wrong 
and change your life accordingly, yeah. right? And and what we've done is we've pathologized these signals. This is the most damaging thing about telling people that their depression is just the result of a chemical imbalance. There are real things going on in your biology when you become depressed. I talk about them in Lost Connections. It's not a purely social or psychological phenomenon. But telling people it's just a chemical imbalance pathologizes the pain yeah. and, and it disconnects them from actually finding the reasons why they feel so bad and the solutions. But this comes back to this thing you're saying about you know, what should individuals do? And the reason why I hesitate a bit, although I do talk about things individuals can do, there's a harsh truth about this, right? One of my closest relatives is a struggling single mom who works really hard every hour she can to pay the rent to stay in her home, right, with her kids. And she gets home and she collapses. And the truth is the margin of change in her life that she can make is extremely limited, yeah. right? And what, to me, is very cruel is to throw it back on her and say, what should she do? Truth is, you know, we're in a car, we're driving down a highway, right? We don't say the job of fixing car accidents lies on people who've just been mangled in a car crash, right? right. We have driving tests and speed limits and airbags and we arrest DUIs. We have as a societal response to, to, to the problem of car crashes, which is not perfect, but is if we didn't do, if we just left it to individual drivers and individual pedestrians, far more people would die on the roads, right? And in a similar way, because depression is largely but not entirely a social and spiritual crisis, we need a social and spiritual response, not least because the factors that are making some people, these nine factors I write about that are making some people depressed and anxious, are making loads of people just feel like shit, right? They're making loads of people not have full-blown depression, but are making their lives radically less fulfilled. Yeah, subclinical. So, so exactly. So <clears throat> I think there's a really key key aspect of this, which is, in a sense, we need to be jolted out of thinking in this individualistic way. I'll give you an example of another person who really changed my mind on this. In Berkeley, I want to go and interview someone called Dr. Brett Ford, who's an amazing person. And she did this research, she's in Toronto now, she did this really interesting research. It's kind of simple. It just asks, um, if you consciously and deliberately decide to try to be happier, will you in fact become happier, right? And they looked at um, four countries. They looked at the United States, and what were the other ones? Taiwan, Japan, and Russia. And what they found is, in the United States, if you decide to dedicate more of your time to becoming happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, if you try to become happier, you do. And they were like, what's going on? What they discovered is, in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, what you do is you do something for yourself. You mm. try to buy something for yourself, you mm. pick yourself up, you try to get a promotion, whatever, right? right? In the other places, most of the time, if you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. Mm. We have an instinctively individualist conception of what happiness is, and they have an instinctively collectivist vision of what happiness well, is. Well, I wouldn't say it's instinctive, I'd say it's cultural. Yeah, no, yeah, no you're right. Yeah, it's, it's become our instinct because of the story the culture tells, mm. right? And 
and and our model of happiness just doesn't work right that we're not that species right you know we wouldn't have survived as human beings on the savannas of africa if our priority had been bigging up ourselves rather right. than bigging up the group right? right exactly and i think one of the things i saw at Cotty in berlin was a transition from an individualist conception of happiness to a collectivist con- vision of happiness it's one of the reasons why this was interesting research why is there such a huge increase in mental health problems when immigrants move from what are called developing countries to what are called developed countries right why does someone if you move from bangladesh to the united states why does some person become radically more likely to develop schizophrenia depression anxiety all these obesity yeah there's a lot of things going on there but a big part of it I think is the transition from a collectivist society that meets people's underlying psychological needs to a much greater degree to an individualist society that doesn't do that very well, right? So again, when you see that context saying, what can this isolated, lonely individual do on their own to make things better? The truth is not that much, but what they can do is reach out to other people around them and as a group begin to solve their problems and just and i don't just i don't mean you know really big thing just really big things like gay marriage or you know fighting for universal basic income which where that's been tried as really reduced depression and anxiety i mean lots of things just being present with each other you know i mean the crisis in being present in our culture i had an experience really <clears throat> It's a little scene that just to me so illustrates this madness recently. One of my nephews is a big fan of Elvis, so I took him to Graceland in Memphis. And we were there, and um, when you arrive in Graceland, they don't have a physical person who shows you around anymore. But they, I assume because it's cheaper, they give you an iPad. And they give you headphones, so you, what happens is you walk around Graceland and this iPad shows you around, right? So you arrive in a room, and what happens is the iPad in front of you has a representation of where you are. And... Um, so like say you're in the jungle room in front of you there's you see the so what happens is everyone just walks around looking at the iPad right they've they've travelled all this way (laughs) and they could have just stayed at home and looked at this on an iPad and we're in the jungle room and this guy's staring at the room on his iPad and he turned to his wife and he said hey honey this is great this is amazing if you swipe left you can see the room to the left and if you swipe right you can see the room to the right and I looked at him and I said but sir, there's a there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do here, which is <laughs> With your turning legs. your head because <laughs> oh, yeah. we are in fact in that room, right? <laughs> and it looked to me like I was completely crazy, and everyone just went back to looking at their yeah. iPad. And I thought this is insane. We don't know how to be physically present yeah. in the places we are. You know, we, we, there's such a crime. I went to the first ever internet rehab center uh, for people addicted to the internet in Washington State, in, Spok- in Spokane, in Washington. And um, the first thing that happened to me when I got there was um, I glanced at my phone and felt it's a clearing in the woods I glanced at my phone and felt really irritated I had no cell phone reception I was like yeah. oh wait you're in a fucking rehab center for internet addicts right of course there's no you know <laughs> you know. but that you're was fascinating right yeah yeah uh, how long is your interview here? it'll probably be a couple of hours so I don't want oh, to make okay. it wait thank you right, thank you right. the um, yeah this guy is a super interesting guy who I'm meeting um yeah, we're arriving at our destination in uh, Orange County, the OC. As the OC, say. yeah. yeah it does not look at all like the TV show. No. There are no shirtless teenagers. Uh, there's just kind not of bleak, at- atomized. Yeah, lots uh, of lonely people living in their little boxes. Yeah, yeah. this is where, um, I've been here before, because this is near where Nixon, this is the Nixon Presidential Library isn't far from here. Yeah, um, Orange County's 
Yeah, Nixon. Reagan was around, or was Reagan up near Santa Barbara? San Clemente yeah, was, was uh, Nixon, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I went to the um, Nixon Presidential Library here years ago, and it, um, he's in Yorba Linda, um, the Nixon Presidential Library. Um, yeah, it's deeply. I remember there's a scene in the Nixon Presidential Library where you walk through the room and they've got the costume, the clothes that people wore when they met Nixon, and then it says the voice from it. So you walk past the clothes Nixon was wearing, uh, Elvis was wearing when he met Nixon, and it literally speaks Elvis. It's deeply weird. It's like a horrible uh, stress dream. Elvis uh, was like a drug czar or something for Nixon. But you know, that was the other fascinating thing about um, Graceland that was really interesting. It's like a kind of North Korean shrine to Elvis. You go around, it's like a vision of the hollowness of the American dream. So you go around and you, there's all this, so you're told Elvis is born, he's this preternatural genius, and he was a genius. And you're shown, there's all these kind of quotes from Elvis, which are extremely materialistic, something like, you know, next to his Mercedes, it says, happiness is owning five Mercedes Benz or something like that. I can't remember the exact line. And you're going around, and there's no pictures of fat Elvis anywhere. He looks gorgeous in every single picture. Mm. And you're waiting for the bit where they're going to explain, oh, and then he developed this horrendous addiction because actually his life was so hollow and empty, and then he dies at the age of 40. And you just they just never mention that. You get to the end, and it's his grave, and it just says Elvis Presley, whatever the years of his birth was, and they just never mention the hollowness and emptiness of it. And you're like, oh, wow, this is such a revealing little story about the about the American vision of happiness. You you become rich, you become completely isolated, you drink yourself to death, you take massive amounts of whatever it was taking barbiturates, and you die, and you're told that you had the perfect life and there's no explanation for your misery. Revealing you know? by what it fails to reveal. Exactly. That's a really yeah. good way of putting it. And uh, poor Elvis. Yeah. And there's no not not even an image of Elvis where he looks slightly fat, right? It's like <laughs> just like he's just like the lithe kind of gorgeous Elvis that we And yeah. also take it to another level. How many songs did Elvis ever write? Oh, you can't take away from Elvis. Are you dissing to Elvis? He, did, he never wrote a song. What? Not he never that wrote any of those true. songs. I'm pretty Elvis sure Elvis didn't is. write any of them. I don't think so. I don't think that can be true. Can All right, hold on. Right. I refuse to hear these insults. We're, we're going to have to do this, this, is, this off air. That's a blasphemy against the American religion <laughs> that I will not tolerate. Right? I'm pretty Me. sure Elvis never wrote a fucking song. Well, I don't want to know that. If, <laughs> if it's true, just hide that truth from me. All right. Uh, you, we're here at your destination. And uh, thank oh, you. Thank you very much. Thank it was you like so the most much, highbrow man. Uber ride ever. <laughs> Great. Cheers. Thanks very much. All right. I just looked that up and uh, turns out that I was right in this case. I'm not always right, but occasionally. Elvis never wrote a fucking song. He got co-writing credits on a few songs, but uh, from what I've read, that was part of a deal that his agent set up and that he didn't actually co-write any of them. That's not to take away from the fact that he was an amazing stylist, amazing uh, performer, and he was, after all, Elvis. So, but he didn't write any songs. Thank you, Johan. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. And uh, check out Johan. Check out his books, Chasing the Scream and uh, Lost Connections. And uh, his Facebook page, his Twitter, his Instagram. He doesn't do Snapchat because he's a man with dignity. All right. As I do almost every week, I want to thank Basin and Range for the introductory little slip of music there it's from a song called bright side of the sun i definitely encourage you to check out the whole song because it gets wild and crazy 
Uh, you can find their music at basinandrangeband.com. I want to uh, thank all of you who uh, contribute to the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com. You can look up Tangentially Speaking. You can give me a buck a month or uh, contribute 50 bucks a month or whatever you can afford to the podcast if you want to support it financially. That's always most appreciated. We're over 800 patrons now. We're pushing 1,000. Let's bring it up to 1,000 people. And as I say, if if we can get some serious money coming through here, I'll hire more people from the community to do things like transcribe episodes. And uh, I've got show notes. Nate of the North is doing show notes. And uh, I can hire somebody to, to schedule interviews. And I can travel to more people to do more interviews. So it's very helpful uh, if you can afford to support the podcast financially. Of course, the Amazon affiliate link I mentioned is also fantastic. Works in the UK, Canada, and the US, of course. And reviews on iTunes are helpful and wonderful. And uh, they help people decide whether or not this is worth listening to. So when they see hundreds of positive reviews, they, they'll give the podcast a chance. So thank you very much for that. And of course, anyone who wants a shirt, from mom she's happy to send them out to you you can see them at the website tangentially speaking.com and uh, you'll see the store tab there and you can order uh, tangentially speaking shirts uh paleo modern shirts sexadon shirts civilized Edition shirts whatever you want and if you want to buy something from sure design t-shirts.com they make our shirts and they also make a wide range of yoga clothes and all sorts of fantastic funky hippie gear uh use the discount code ctd civilized to death ctd and you get 20 percent off your entire order i'm going to play you out as i always do with smoke alarm by the great carcy blanton you can check out her music at carcyblanton.com here's to you bennett and justin he said baby what's a big deal Feel what you wanna feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away 
it's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.